Okay, yay, straight in there. That's professional stuff, that is. And you just say, am I on? Am I on? <laughs> am I on? Can, can you hear me now? <laughs> it's all right, I know you can hear me. <laughs> okay, praise the Lord. So anyone who speaks should speak of the very mouthpiece of God. That should be the ruling force in any collective worship we should gather, and any proclamation should be made in the name of Jesus. Anything else, we should cast aside. And I encourage you to develop that gift in. I see the freedom of charismatic worship in this church, and I rejoice in it. But it must be tempered with a holy fear of what I speak, I speak for Jesus. And um, I thank God for the voices I've heard today and for the variety of gifts present in this church Um, I'd encourage you to be the mouthpieces of God. And that's what I hope to be for you today. Uh, Before I start, I just want to say a little bit more about me whilst I'm coming on board with you guys. I've uh, been preaching now for about 20 years. I was baptized in the Holy Spirit at about 16 years of age. And I've journeyed with Jesus, and I just feel like I'm beginning right now. Okay, so bear with me. I'm still learning a lot. And uh, I was a teacher for 10 years. Uh, I'm still teaching now. The Lord provided a two and a half day teaching job. Uh, on the back of coming on board with you, I needed another two and a half days to uh, to fill the gap in my week. And a teacher, head teacher, got in touch with me. Said, Do "You fancy a job?" Just at the time I was about to start here. Well, that for me is a bit too much of a coincidence because it fits exactly. Uh, what do I hope to to do while I'm here? Obey Jesus. And uh, what am I? Uh, hoping to contribute, uh, whatever Jesus enables me to contribute. Um, What what am I passionate about? Souls and disciples. Uh, In fact, it's cut me through, I'm like Blackpool Rock, I get boring uh, uh, on this issue. Those who are not interested in making souls and and, uh, winning souls and making disciples will probably find me a little bit challenging to be with. I'm obsessed with it, but that's okay because Jesus commanded us all to be obsessed with that. Uh, and uh, hope that many of you are rooting now to say, yeah, we too want to win souls and make disciples for Jesus uh, in this place. I've been leading a church um, in West Midlands, Bethel Church, for three years, um, alongside some very good leaders. One of my elders was, was the head of United Christian Broadcasters. I had another six people in my leadership team, all very varied in the gifting and were very supportive of me. Rachel, not nonetheless, has been the most supportive. It was very challenging to, to be in a setting away from family and friends. My wife is a very competent lady. She was a secondary teacher, then moved into banking and became a bank manager, and then moved into an area role. She's now uh, working in the UCB, United Christian Broadcasters, in the media uh, group that they are heading up the prayer line. And um, Rachel and I found it difficult to be in that place of isolation. So when we found that we'd um, got to a place where the church was stable, there was 20 years of stagnation in this 80-year-old church. And uh, we took them into the Elam Pentecostal denomination and we ministered to, to them. And when we felt it was a good place to, to, to leave them, we handed it over to the team there to appoint a new minister. And now we're in a setting whereby we've got the support of friends and family around us who can uh, be, be there for us. And so it's not um, ideal to be at a distance from you. 
in Lancashire. We travel 35, 40 minutes to get here. But while the church is in its nascent phase, its young phase, um, we feel we can contribute um, in the days I'm with you. On those two things I mentioned, on winning souls and making disciples, I hope to support Keith in, in his task. He's obviously an entrepreneurial character and a very strong leader. I've known Keith for a number of years. He leads a on many levels, but his business is obviously very time-consuming, and uh, I hope just to be a good friend and a good support to someone who's really sacrificed a lot with his family amongst you. I know many of you will have sacrificed an awful lot to bring the church to this level, and I commend you for that. It's It's absolute warfare to get a church off the ground spiritually. We'll come into that in what I'm about to say. But um, I would encourage you coming, and I know nothing, that's a good thing and a bad thing, I know nothing of the majority of you, I would encourage you to get behind Keith and Rachel, Um, the devil wants to take them out, the devil wants to take this church out, and the only thing we should do is speak the truth in love, nothing should be hidden. That is, because what the Bible says, nothing that is hidden will not be made known. Everything that is said in secret will be spoken on the rooftops. So uh, we need to make sure that we are behind these people. I just feel that in the Lord. And um, just, you'll see this church motor now. I really believe that. The Lord said to me as I stepped through the doors that this, and, and the last time I spoke here, that this church will become a flagship church. That is the prophetic that hangs over it from its, from its initial, um, initial birth when the leaders of New Frontiers or Christ Central Churches as it is now gathered around these two, prophesying that they would be sticky people, and that's whom I've known them to be. They've gathered many people around them already, and I'm just really excited to be working with you. I'm really excited to what Jesus will do in the city of Chester. I hear that there are three church plants that the Lord has sent here. One of them I know about in uh, the Crown Plaza across the way, the... Um, uh, vineyard. That is great news, isn't it? It's fabulous news because there are thousands and thousands of souls who are held bound without hope in this world, who are separated be- from God because of their wicked works, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and the Lord is desirous to win cities. Do you believe that God wants to win a city? I'm here for that. I'm here for God to do great things. I want the Lord to win Chester. I will never be satisfied till every soul is one on the planet. How about you? So there's plenty of room for three, four, five, ten church plants. Lord, bring whatever you need to do to win this city. We say, Amen. Amen. Glory to God. Let's begin. The title of my message, can I start my time now? Is that allowed? (laughs) Or is that cheating? (laughs) <laughs> the title of my message is What's in a Name? And the best place to start, because these are the most important words that I'll say today, is God's Word. Mark chapter 7, verses 24 to 30. Jesus honors a Syrophoenician woman's faith. Just for interest's sake, we drop now into the text of Mark where Jesus has begun a Galilean and Gentile invasion. Jesus is kicking off his ministry to the Gentiles and that is all I'll say on that. Verse 24 of Mark 7, Jesus left that place and went to the vicinity of Tyre. It's quite a wealthy place, Tyre. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know it. Yet he could not keep his presence secret. 
In fact, as soon as she heard about him, a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an impure spirit came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek, born in Syrian Phoenicia. She begged Jesus to drive the demon out of her daughter. First, let the children eat all that they want, he told her, for it's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Lord, she replied, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And then he told her, for such a reply, you may go, the demon has left your daughter. She went home and found a child lying on the bed and the demon gone. And there we have our text. Nice way to start, a demonized child. Thanks for that, Keith. So I've been in and out of books on demonization, exorcism, deliverance. It's been a fun week. I've seen every spectrum of, of character from fanatic crackpot to completely denying the reality of the demonic and everything in between. We need to be balanced on this stuff, but the demonic opposition to you as a Christian believer, if you follow Jesus at the moment, in fact, if you're not a follower of Jesus, you probably experience some of the opposition of the enemy, which we call the devil. It's a reality and we need to deal with it. And we need to understand what God is saying to us through this passage. I think the best place to start would be Act 2, Scene 2 of Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet. Here we have Juliet arguing that the name means nothing, and only what things actually are in substance matters. Changing the name of someone or something cannot change its substance, she argues. The most famous line, and many of you will know this, in that scene is, what's, do you want to say it with me? Maybe some of you are thespians. What's in a name? We didn't do this with the scriptures, did we? I can't believe we're doing this. What's in a name? That which we call, oh, come on. That, <laughs> that which we call a rose. I don't know it. Come on, you surely know this. What's in a gnome? Name. That gnome? No, not gardens. <laughs> What's in a name? That which we call a rose by any other name would smell as sweet. Juliet is desperate for the Capulet that she is to inherit a Montague in relationship. She's desperate for Romeo Montague to lay down his family affiliations, to take up the Capulet name, to be sworn a love. Romeo, Romeo, wherefore art thou, Romeo? I'm here, my love. Cast down that fragrant flower. Honestly, that's in the text. I jest you not. Is anyone into this or is it just me? Just me. What light through yonder window breaks? Juliet is desperate for him to deny, deny his fame. Leave, listen, we have this feuding family scenario. Please leave your family and be my lover. Deny thy father or refuse thy name. Or if thou wilt not, but be sworn my love and I shall no longer be a Capulet. She's desperate for him. She's desperate for her love. And she asks that ridiculous question, and I use ridiculous to link to what I'm about to say. What's in a name? Biblically, that's so off the mark, Shakespeare. For us as Christians and those with a Judeo-Christian heritage, names are vitally important. God introduces himself by name. In fact, on a quick study, there were 236 names of God that I found in the text. Yahweh Makedesh, Yahweh Shammah, Yahweh Rapha, the Lord who heals, the Lord who sanctifies, the Lord who's there. And we go on and we go on and we go on because the Lord is great. 
If we wanted to stamp one label on him, we might put the Lord is limitless. But labels are important to God. No longer will you be called Abraham, father of many, but father of a multitude, Abraham. I'm going to give you a new name. No longer will you be called Jacob, but now you'll be called Israel. No longer will you be called deceiver. You'll be called prince with God. Names are really important in the ancient Near East. They define a person. So much so that Jabez, when he prayed to God, he said, Oh God, my name means pain. Don't let me cause pain. In that way of thinking, they thought their name had some prophetic destiny over it. Well, why did God say you should call his name Jesus? For he shall save his people from the sins. Jesus, Yeshua, Yahweh is salvation. Elijah, overhanging his name, the Lord, he is God. What was the focus of his ministry? To bring down the prophets of Baal and Asherah. To do what? To save the Lord. If, if the Lord is God, then worship him. If Baal is God, then worship him. But who is God? Elijah, the Lord is God, is his name. He's, his name means something. So this business from Shakespeare, what's in a name, biblically is ridiculous. And I would draw a line between that and the concept of freedom church. Freedom Church. What's in a name, Freedom Church? That which we call a rose by any other name would smell as sweet. Rubbish, Shakespeare. I wouldn't argue with you with your great intellect, but biblically that's rubbish. Freedom Church, in its essence, is a carrier of freedom. Freedom! (laughs) Mel Gibson, yeah. Does anyone else like epics? I'm just going to embarrass myself every week. I'm up here, aren't I? <laughs> Freedom! But that was the shout of Jesus Christ. We see that right at the end in that film where Mel Gibson is being tortured. We see it in the life of Jesus Christ. This shout of freedom. I want to say to you that Jesus shouts freedom over your life today. Freedom from sickness. Freedom from bondage. To demonic powers, freedom from alcohol addiction, freedom from drug addiction, freedom from cancer, Lord let it be, freedom from back pain, some of you came in with back pain tonight, we'll pray for that, but freedom from the demonic, from the father of lies, from the one who is seeking whom he may devour, from the one who picks off like a lion the weak ones on the edge of community. I see people in the spirit here that are on the edge of community who need to engage, who need to come into close relationship, who need to be accountable to people so that the Lord can put his arms around you in community. I doubt that anyone is strong enough to be a lone Christian ranger. In fact, I know so. Terry Virgo in his book of People Prepared talks about this concept of peeling people off into loneliness. That is the work of the devil. It is the one thing that Paul used as the greatest sanction in the church. Cast that one out to the enemy so that he might learn not to sin. Peeling off into loneliness is the enemy's first tactic to destroy you. But the Lord wants you in community. And I speak freedom in Jesus' name over this church today so that you might come into the fullness of love. It's like man was saying in the concept of Peter. So they might come into the one who is love. Who is it who said that? Was it Phil? The one who is love. We, 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 we say these things. And Phil, I, I love the way you led worship today. But let them penetrate our hearts.
You see, see, we love him because he first loved us. Many people, many Christians are sincerely trying to serve the Lord and they're trying to love the Lord, but they cannot bring to being that love because they've never encountered the one who is love. Keith's now panicking because he's seen my notes. <laughs> I can see it in his eyes. I have to go with the Holy Spirit. But I feel like God is saying to me, it's okay, I can jump, I've, I'm used to it. <laughs> Is it true? Are we Freedom Church? What's in a name that can say we now? It's good to be with you. Does it do what it says on the tin? Does it bring freedom? There are churches that get this wrong. There is a flipping church of God. Yes, there is a place called Flipping. There is a Little Hope Baptist Church. You'll have seen that, those who've been on Google Images looking for church signs. Little Hope. Please forgive me if you go to Little Hope Baptist Church. (laughs) Someone needs to rebrand there. There is a laboratory church of God. Yes, yes indeed, folks. (laughs) Come to our church and be be dealt with as mice. Flock to us and we'll we'll surgically change you to be Jesus followers. There is a boring mm, church. UM, maybe United Methodist. Boring. This place called Boring. There's a coward church of God. For all you weak and... Frail people, cowardly. The lion in the lion in the uh, Wizard of Oz. Come on, coward church of God. But are we freedom church? Because I read in that text we've just read, where she she comes to him and Jesus uses this phrase, the children's bread. It's a staple, isn't it? Bread. Go to the shop and get me milk and bread. How often have people done that? It's a staple. And it was in the ancient Near East. In fact, it represented something of inestimable value because people knew what it was to be hungry back then beyond the bounds of a social system like we've got in this country and so forth. Bread was really important. In fact, they thought Jesus was going to become a political bread messiah. Give us bread. And Jesus said, you've come to me because you hunger for the bread that doesn't satisfy. I'm the living bread. I can satisfy you. I want to feed you at my messianic banquet table. But you just come for ordinary bread. Bread is... The children's is the text here. It is part of the outflow of the kingdom. Where the king is, the bread is. The table is served wherever Jesus rules. That's why today I don't need to feel his presence to know that anything's possible. I love feeling his presence, don't get me wrong. I do feel his presence. But I don't have, I don't have to feel, we don't have to have the music just right for God to break out. Against my nature, you saw me probably backwards, maybe some of you, going looking after my child and making sure everything's great and not noisy. We don't have to have everything just right, parents, in terms of noise levels, for the Spirit of God to break out. Because when we go to the supermarket, if we're carriers of his presence, we just say, Lord Jesus, do what only you can do. When you see a sick person in your life in this week, do not look at yourself and say, I'm not fit to pray for the sick. Just pray, will you? And look to the one who can do more than you've ever asked or thought according to his power that's at work in you. God wants to use you this week in your workplace, in your family, in your schools. God wants to use you. And if he doesn't use you in your setting, who will he use? Who will he use? 
Stop measuring yourself as if we somehow have to cut it before he can use us. Jesus uses the weak things of this world to shame the strong. That's somewhere in the Bible too, isn't it? Come on, Steve, get in the focus zone. So Freedom Church is what we should be. We should offer a feast of freedom. Every time we meet, we should expect people to be brought into freedom, whatever level of service we have. Closer to Jesus, freedom in our understanding, freedom in our bodies, freedom from the demonic. We don't have to understand it theologically. I did healing and exorcism on my master's degree and didn't come to any conclusion. Because there isn't a methodology or a way of constructing our understanding of how Jesus sovereignly heals and delivers, only that we know that his kingdom has come and he is sovereign and he will have his way in his way all the time. That's good news, isn't it? What is our job? To pray and to speak as he leads. See, people don't get involved in freedom because they are afraid of the fanaticism that's often associated with exorcism and the demonic. Put your hands up, please. If you've ever seen with your own eyes, some of you won't have, but if you've seen with your own eyes, abusive deliverance ministry, where maybe there is someone writhing on the floor with a demon and the poor person is gyrating on the carpet and biting at the chair legs, getting carpet burns, and being ridiculed in the context of a public meeting. Has anyone ever seen that? Show me your hands. It is not God-honoring, and it is what I would call spiritual rape. And I quote Francis McNutt when I say that. Even the demons are subject to us in Christ's name. Jesus said, but do not rejoice that the choice that the demons are subject to you. Rejoice instead that your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. It's a dirty job. We've got to do it. But the truth remains, we deal with it when it comes lovingly. See, you see so many gunslinging, lone-ranging, Pentecostal, charismatic Christians who deal with the demon and they're angry with the demon and they forget the person. Love. Love, 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 love. Jesus had compassion on the people always. In our story, and we're going to go into it shortly, there is a woman who has to put her foot in the door, apparently, by the text, to stop him turning away. That's not how it is, actually, from what I'm about to say. But Jesus is opening, he's being inclusive. He's opening his arms wide. I want to show you that. I want to mention to you two things as we go on. There is an open door in God's economy and there's a door that needs to be shut. Jesus has his arms wide open to all people. We know that. It's up here, but let it penetrate our hearts. Some people don't get involved in deliverance ministry because they've seen the abuse. Some people don't get involved in deliverance ministry because they don't even believe it. Here the evil that is in the human nature, they say, is enough with what is wrong with the world. When Jesus is reported to drive out demons, he was just speaking according to the mentality of his age, which attributed mental illness to evil spirits. Of course, I'm going to say why I think that's nonsense in a minute. Healing is nice, isn't it? We pray for the sick, we see people healed, but exorcism is dirty work. You see a lot of healing rooms in cities. Have you ever seen one of them? They opened up the healing rooms. You've never seen an exorcism room, have you? Because it's di- but we need it just as much. We need healing through deliverance sometimes. 
And we need the community of pastoral care to ensure that that person stays well. What a horrific thing to experience. Spiritual rape, let's use that word, excuse the language, this majority are fine to hear that. And then to leave them to flounder and be abused again by the enemy who invades them when they go home. They need to be discipled to stand strong and to maintain their freedom. Are you coping with this stuff? It's dirty work, but we've got to, we've got to read this stuff. This is, this is the text I was given. We need to be a freedom church in, in truth. You see, so many people are in chains. So many people are embittered. So many people are resentful. So many people are hurting, lustful, proud, angry or defeated. And that's not just a sinful trait. Sometimes, I say sometimes, it can have a demonic root. And I'll show you that from scripture. See, sometimes in these cases, this demonic infestation can become like the person's house, their life, has a squatter living in it. It can be like a city with broken walls where the majority of it is reigned by the individual, but as an area of the life where the enemy has a place. Some of you may may not believe this. I've seen it. I've ministered to people with it. I understand it to be true from scripture. Nonsense, you say. Where do you get that from, that a Christian who has the Holy Spirit can have an evil spirit? How is that possible biblically? The Bible says that with forgiveness, we've got to make sure that the enemy doesn't have an opportunity for we're not ignorant of his devices. But more specifically in Ephesians 4, where Paul is outlining church unity, togetherness, wholeness in Christ as the head, he uses this phrase, don't let the sun go down on your wrath instead, don't give, and therefore do not give the devil a foothold. The word is topos, it literally means place in your life, and it intimates that through unforgiveness, through bitterness, through residing in a mindset that is devil-pleasing, we somehow say, yes, Satan, I agree that unforgiveness is the right way to go. Sit there and ride on the back of that unforgiveness until I come to the place of submission to the will of God. And I've seen this in pastoral ministry, that people with an unforgiving spirit can give room to the devil. Not always. Sometimes it's a psychological thing, and as pastoral people, we need to say, okay, does it need repentance? Does it need forgiveness? Does it need the person to renounce what they've been involved in? Does it need the person to change their pathway? Or is it, in some, as it is in some cases, a demonic infestation because of sin? Idolatry, compulsive sin, deep emotional wounding, and the list that can be attached to it, unforgiveness, bitterness, resentment, rebellion, over-religiosity, pride can all become a foothold for the enemy to name some of the most common open doors. Don't get me wrong, that is not always going to be the case. Sometimes it will be. And I've ministered to people like this. Where do we get this from? So I've mentioned the Bible. Another witness would be tradition throughout Christian history. The church have battled with the demonic in people's lives. In fact, we go back to Pope Paul VI. Some of you may not even approve of the Catholic Church. I very much do. I value all streams of Christian life and experience that are trying to be Christ-centered. He said this, Pope Paul VI, what are the greatest needs of the church today? Do not let your answers surprise you as being over-simple or even superstitious and and unreal. One of the greatest needs 
is the, the defense from the evil which is called the devil. Evil is not merely a lack of something, but an effective agent, a living spiritual being, perverted and perverting a terrible reality. And I'll go on. It is contrary to the teaching of the Bible and the church to refuse to recognize the existence of such a reality or to explain it as a pseudo-reality, a conceptual and fanciful personification of the unknown causes of our misfortunes. Are you still with me? Let me read this last paragraph. That, is not a question of, that, that it is not a question of one devil but many, as indicated by various passages in the gospel, like Luke 11 and Mark 5. He gives us an example. You'll have read that, won't you, because we're on Mark 7. Do you remember Mark 5? Who did Mark 5? You remember that one? But the principal one is Satan, which means the adversary, the enemy. And with him, many, all creatures of God, but fallen, because of their rebellion and damnation, a whole, listen to this word, a whole mysterious world upset by an unhappy drama of which we know very little. I think that, from a pope, is incredibly balanced. I love that language of mysterious and of which we know little. There is no person on the planet who is an expert on the demonic. I'm glad that Jesus is an expert on the, on the demonic, aren't you? And that's why I value ministry that is not spiritual rape. I'll repeat that because you'll never forget it, even if it's offensive. But which is loving of the person which allows them to be responsible for their own freedom and which helps them to walk into the light. Because you know what? Jesus said one thing in John's gospel. What did he say on the cross? It is finished. Tetelestai. It is perfectly perfect. It is completely complete. And now the messianic banquet, the table is, le- is, is laid. The bread is ready. Start serving the people with freedom. Start bringing the life of the kingdom through broken and ordinary people who think nothing of themselves and don't think they can do it, but God says, I can do it through you. I think some of you are going to be surprised with what Jesus does with your life. I think some of you are going to be amazed when you start seeing deaf people here and blind eyes open and dumb people speaking, cripples walking. Do you believe that happens? I've seen it with my own eyes. Spent a week with Reinhard Bonnke in 2012. Went around a supermarket with some of these crazy evangelist types. And there were people with crutches who couldn't walk, suddenly start walking. God is working through ordinary people. The majority of them probably couldn't even spell Jesus. Do you know what I'm talking about? Some of you would not remember that. I just love the people God chooses. Is that good? God takes anyone who's willing We're willing, he's able. We're willing, he's able. He's able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all you've ever asked or thought, according to his power that's at work within us. I rebuke every self-rejecting spirit in this room. In the name of Jesus, you are precious in the sight of God. You are valued by Jesus. You have a great destiny over your life. Is that over the top? Three places where I get this concept from. The Bible, there's, Ephesians 4 says we can give a place to the enemy through our choices. Understand it says a squatter, the blood of Jesus owns us, but we were too stupid to guard that area of our life and keep ourselves from under that stronghold. Tradition, I've just read the Pope. Experience, 
Francis McNutt, a fabulous, that's one of the best books on healing and exorcism I've ever read. I read some rubbish this week, but that's pretty good. Healing and Exorcism by Francis McNutt. It's the best book I've read in terms of balance. But we have a variety of people who are muddling their way through. There's a guy called Peter Horobin, is it Horobin? Peter Horobin, who is heavily involved with L.L. Grange Ministries. In its early years, it caused the church we were involved in a lot of problems, but it's grown internationally. And though I do not, I've read through his book on healing through deliverance, I don't, I think some of it's, forgive me, I don't like it. But you know what? They're having a go. And people are getting set free now because they're trying to apply love and prayer so that they care. And I think if you're committed to loving people and praying them through, any bondage can be broken. Any stronghold habit can be changed because Jesus is Lord. And why do I say that? Because experience of these writers that I've seen, experience of other ministers that I know. In fact, in my own experience, I've had to minister to people who, on the outward appearance, didn't appear to have a stronghold. I had one woman text me, Rachel, Steve, I'm, I'm, I'm having bad thoughts. So we went round to this person's house. It was very calm. I said, Jesus, set her free from this. She stands up, runs into the kitchen, grabs her knife out of the knife block. Seriously. I rebuke, Rachel's right at the back, she'll agree when this happened. I rebuke the spirit that was in her, said, sit down in the name of Jesus. She flopped on the sofa. What was driving her sat down. And I tried to drive the demonic out of her life, but because she'd not repented of her sin, and this is where the spiritual rape term is, 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 has got to be understood, because we are more than just a person that can house stuff. We're body, mind, soul, spirit. We are multifaceted. And that person was living in serial sexual relationships outside of the will of God as a Christian. There is no way the enemy who'd gain entrance through that deliberate disobedience... And some people that she'd been lying with weren't savory characters. There was no way it's going to move because she'd given it its place. So pastorally, she needed to be taught not only how to repent and stand for her freedom, but to maintain it through a godly lifestyle. I'm just telling you what I experienced, not something that I have great outline theology over. But there's not a lot in terms of the scriptures, in terms of methodology of how to. I said that to a number of ministers I gathered with once, and they said, well, how about the word that says they cast out the devil with a word? I thought, well, that doesn't tell you anything. I don't give you methodology. So people muddle through. We've muddled through. I had a guy scream out at a train station. You read that book, don't you? He was demonized. I've seen the operation of the demonic through my ministry. It happens. I had a Satanist who, who was at school who used to hunt me down with pencils because the Spirit of God was within me. Seriously. This is real stuff. He didn't, I'd never told him I was a Christian, but something within him knew I was a Christian and went for me. It's a vivid memory from my time as a 16-year-old. My, my favorite ministry in this regard is Neil Anderson's Freedom Teachings, and I, I love that ministry. If you can get hold of any of his books, Victory Over the Darkness, Neil T. Anderson, fabulous author, if anyone's writing notes. Let's return to our text just to close this off. I could go down several alleyways on this, and I refuse to. I want to leave you with a sense of hope, not a sense of fear or confusion or, how did, I didn't know you could have a demon sort of mindset. I want to leave you with truth. Remember, the door was opened by Jesus. Let's go back to the text. 
Jesus left that place and went into the vicinity of Tyre. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know it, yet he could not keep his presence a secret. Jesus repeats a a habit of trying to seek refuge. It's not so much that he was trying to hide from the Gentiles. He just did that because ministry gets tough sometimes, eh, Keith? Verse 25, in fact, as soon as she heard about him, a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an impure spirit came and fell at his feet. I find it interesting that the last song we sung was, I fall at your feet. I think that was very, very good choice. Events took place forcing Gentile engagement, and then we come into this place where Jesus is speaking to a woman in what appears to be quite harsh, quite brutal language. You dog. He might as well have said. He showed the Jew-Gentile divide that Canaanites were perceived as dogs by the Jewish race. Desperation from the woman put a foot in the door. I like the fact that Jesus uses the word first. Proton put, first let the children eat the bread. He's opening his arms wide here. And then the woman opens it further and says, Kuri, Lord... This is a Gentile who probably had other gods. She's saying, you're my God. She puts her foot further in the door. And then Jesus, probably with a glint in his eye, as Warrington and France say, says, let the children eat all they want. For is it right to take the bread and give it to the dogs? He's saying, you want to come in? Are you a believer? That's how she accessed the messianic banquet, the bread. He's, He's doing what he did to the woman of the well. If you knew it was who spoke to you and the, and the one who you were talking to, he, you would have asked and he would have given you living water. He always, I mean, that was a culturally unacceptable thing. A Jew and a Samaritan, a man and a woman. But he's opening his arms and saying, I include you all. And the grand theme of all of this is that Jesus, today, to you in your pew, opens his arms really, really wide. And he says, you know what? Every issue you've got in your life, I want you to bring it to me today. I'm hurrying to close. You might have noticed. Interesting point I just want to make in closing. She said, Lord, even the dogs eat the, du- the, the under the table the crumbs from the children. Then he said, for such reply you may go, the demon has left your daughter. We don't know from the text if she altered his intention. I don't think that was the case, and I'm going to explain that. Or if he'd been deliberately provocative, as I feel, to yield to a faith response. However, we do, not know, we do know that he has made an apparent about turn. Still, Mark's placing of this event with this woman at the start of many Gentile engagements shows that Jesus and Mark seems to be presenting an all-inclusive God. Finally, the closing of the door. She opened the door, she, door, door, she engaged with it. The closing of the door, the last verse. She went home and found her child lying in the bed and the demon had gone. I want to suggest to you that's the bit that we don't get right as a Christian church when the demon has gone. To close the door requires a discipline of discipleship and a community care that we need to become good at at Freedom Church. I can see already some amazing people with pastoral hearts who are going to need to do this with broken lives that we win for Jesus. You're going to need to be incredibly, maybe more than you've ever been, long-suffering with the types of characters Jesus is going to win. Something I'm not good at, I'll be honest with you. But you're going to have to put your arms around the unlovely, the hurting, the broken, the barren, the deceitful, 
the unwise, the serial this, the serial that, until they come into a place of wholeness, and that is the mission of the church. If I was to close, and I need to, I've been talking a long time, this message is a message of inclusion. Jesus is opening his arms wide and saying, not just the Jews, the Gentiles as well, all people. It's a message about expansion. Jesus was expanding to the Gentiles. It was a parallel message to the message of the kingdom, which is spoken of like a growing tree. And finally, it's a message of the authority of Jesus. Jesus' authority over sin, sickness, and Satan's power, which needs to carry on through Freedom Church today. And finally, the last sentence. Persistent faith, and this is the other grand theme. Persistent faith in the pursuit of freedom and wholeness leads one to the feet of Jesus with all of his resources and wisdom. You are going to need to persist alongside people in this church and those who will come with this knowledge that there is no problem that will come into this church that Jesus Christ isn't big enough to handle. And that as he comes, as this person comes to Jesus or these people, that you will have to be reliant on the Lord as his messianic banquet is available to you regardless of your performance. And I want to just provoke you with this last statement. Start believing God to do extraordinary things through ordinary people. Start believing that God will start doing the miraculous in this church and we will not need to advertise to win the lost. People flock to Jesus because the miracles followed his ministry. Amen? Healing, deliverance, freedom is the children's bread and Freedom Church must have that bread in the house or they'll go somewhere else. Amen.